Good morning. Thanks, Anna, and thanks, Sean, for leading the. It's a joy to sing those Christmas carols and to rejoice in the birth of our Savior. As you know, we've been going through a, a series on the heart of God and have looked at various aspects of that the heart of God in Scripture. The heart of God in His attributes, the heart of God in His uh, compassion, and last week we looked at the heart of God in creation and His works. And as I was thinking and praying about this topic, and as we approach the birth of our Lord, uh, the topic was the incarnation and the heart of God in the incarnation. It just struck me that, in one sense, how how presumptuous it is for us to even think about speaking on a topic like the heart of God. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is God above us. His, his ways and His thoughts are far, far higher than we can ever hope to imagine. And it would be true that it was presumption, except for three things. Number one, we have this, the Word of God revealed to us, that reveals aspects of who He is and what He's done and His heart. Number two, if we are His children, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, who teaches us, prompts us, guides us. In uh, John 14, the Lord told He will guide you in all things. He will teach you in all things. And third, and most important, it's not presumptuous because we have Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Gospel of John in John 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but God the one and only, the one and only Son has declared or revealed Him to us. The word that's used for that declared or revealed is the Greek word exegesiasto. And it's the word from which we get the word exegesis, which really means to give a detailed explanation of what the truth is. And that's basically what John is saying. No one has seen God at any time, but God the Son has explained Him to us. That's also what John, I think, is attend through the Holy Spirit, saying in John 1.14, when it says, We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, in John 1.14. The glory of God is the character of God, the nature of God. And John was saying, well, we saw Him. We saw God. We saw how He interacted with people. We saw His compassion. We saw His love. We saw His mercy. We saw His power. We saw His divine attributes. All of that we saw. And so it's not presumptuous for us, really, to be thinking about the heart of God. And this morning I would suggest to you that nowhere, nowhere is the heart of God more fully revealed, or better revealed, than in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that word, the name Jesus, given we sang earlier in the service, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' name above all names name given by angelic revelation to Joseph, Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people 
from their sins. And a couple of verses after that, Matthew quoting the prophet Isaiah 7.14, says his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So nowhere is the heart of God better revealed than His Son. So this is particularly applicable this Advent season as we look at the heart of God in the Incarnation, and that's what I'd like to talk about this morning, the heart of God in the Incarnation and its effect or its results. This morning we were given an outline, and there's just four simple points I wanted to talk about, about the Incarnation. One, God planned it. Two, God promised it. Three, God did it. And four, God will complete it. And so before we do that, let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you for the chance to look into your word, Lord. And as I said, it was in a sense presumptuous to think about the heart of God, but your Son has revealed your heart to us in his person, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, in truth in His power, in His sacrifice on the cross, in His resurrection. Thank you for all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through the Word this morning, as we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the first thing I'd like to say is, in the heart of God in the Incarnation, is God planned it. God planned it. You know, dear Brother Mike Merritt used to read a passage in First Peter quite often at the Lord's Supper, and I'd like to read that, and that's First Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Well let's, well, let's start up in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. The word that's used for precious, uh, the Greek word is timaeus, which really means uh, like precious stones of much value, costly. John Phillips in his commentary on that says is of inestimable value. Inestimable value. That's why the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians nine fifteen says, "Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift." And it's not just the value; it's also a lamb without blemish and without spot. And John Phillips again uses the term "inexpressible virtue," so inestimable value and inexpressible virtue. He was without spot or blemish. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, he knew no sin, became sin for us. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 verse 5 says, He had no sin within him. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.22 writes, He did no sin. He could boldly challenge his accusers. Which of you can accuse me of sin? No one could. He was without sin. And when did God plan this? That's the most amazing verse 20. First Peter 1, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You know, in Peter's first sermon after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says this of Jesus, him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Two big words, foreordained and foreknowledge. 
What does that mean? Well, it means that before Genesis 1-1, before God created the heavens and the earth, before He created the sun and the moon, before He created the stars, before He created the animals, before He created the birds, before He created all the uh, vegetation on the earth, before He created Adam and Eve, before the serpent came and tempted them, and before they succumbed to temptation, God had a plan. God was not taken by surprise by the fall of man. God already had a plan. It was foreknown in the councils of eternity, and quoting John Phillips again, if God acted in creation, he eventually would have to act in redemption. Let me say that again. If God acted in creation, he eventually would have to act in redemption. And so it was. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit conceived the plan of salvation and redemption, knowing that after creation, the fall would transpire. Why did he do that? Can I understand it? Can I explain it? As a finite being, I cannot understand an infinite God and his plan of salvation. His infinite love for us. In Job 26, I shared this at the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago. Job 26, Job is contemplating the wonder of creation. It's in one of those responses that Job has to his friends and their criticism of him. And Job chapter 26, and he's thinking about the wonder of the earth. Verse 7, Job 26, He stretches out the north over empty space, he hangs the earth on nothing, he binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. And then he goes on about all of that. By Verse 13, By his spirit he adorned the heavens, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Verse 14, Indeed, speaking about all of those wonders of creation, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. How small a whisper we hear of him. And I think of that in relation to the wonder of, of salvation. How small a whisper we hear of him. Can I understand it fully? No. Can I explain it? No. But can I believe it? Yes. I do with all my heart. As the songwriter says, I have no other argument, I have no other plea. It is that enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is enough. We may not fully understand this plan of salvation, the ramifications of the divine plan, but when we arrive in glory and know, even as we are known, as First Corinthians 13 says, I think we'll only begin, we'll only begin to understand. We have all of eternity to understand the wonder of God's plan before the foundation of the world. So God planned the incarnation before the foundation of the world. What's the application? God has a plan for each of us. God has a plan for each of us here, seated here today. You may not think that, oh, it doesn't apply to me. Huh? It doesn't seem like He has a plan for me. To the prophet Jeremiah, he said, before you were born, I knew you, and I ordained you. Now, I, I wouldn't know. Jeremiah might have said, why, why learned I'm to be the prophet? Joe read from Psalm 139 this morning. Later on in the Psalm, verse 16 of Psalm 139, David writes, Your eyes saw my substance being as yet unformed, 
talking about in the womb. And in your book they were all written, fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. Isn't that mind-boggling to know? Before you were born, before you were formed, God has a plan for your life. And not just for you, for everyone who's ever been born. Can I understand that? No? Can I explain it? No. I've had to struggle with that. Thinking about our daughter, God had a plan for her life. Did it seem good at the time? No. But God says all things work together for good, so who do I trust? He does work things together for good. I come to realize if you know if even one person came to faith because of her journey through cancer, in God's eyes, that would have been enough. That would be enough. If someone's faith was strengthened, that would have been enough. I know that's happened. Who am I to ask God, the infinite being? He has the right to take his child home when he wants to. And he's done that. Praise be to God. Application, God has a plan for your life. Seek to know what it is. Last week when Jack was sharing, he had shared this verse from Ephesians 2.20, another amazing verse. We are God's workmanship, we are God's poem. That's the Greek word, basically a poem, a masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which the, the King James uses that word again. Good works which he has ordained. Good works that he has... Can you understand that he has good works that he has planned for you, that are his plan for you? Are you willing to submit and surrender in daily to the Holy Spirit? Lord, I want to do those good works that you've planned for me. That's the application of it. The incarnation was planned before the foundation of the world. But God has a plan for you and for me that he has, that he had before, the fun, before we were born. And so we trust him for that. So firstly, God planned it. Secondly, God promised it. God promised it. You know, in the pristine perfection of the Garden of Eden, Satan comes in as a serpent and tempts Eve. And she succumbs and eats of the fruit that God had forbidden them for eating. For God had told them in Genesis 2 verse 17, In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And God's word is always is always true. The Bible gives us reasons Eve ate the fruit. If you look at that chapter, it says it was good for food. The Apostle John in the epistle, First, First John, talks about all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve saw that it was good for food, which is the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eye, the lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Have you ever wondered why the Bible doesn't give any similar reasons for Adam? It doesn't. It says all that Eve gave the fruit and he ate. But both sinned. And with sin came knowledge that they were naked. With that knowledge came shame. With that shame came fear, as they knew that they had disobeyed God. Sin always brings shame and fear, even today, doesn't it? And they hid from God, but God sought them out. 
And in Genesis chapter 3, you have that place where God pronounces a curse on the serpent and the ground, but he did not curse Adam and Eve. He did not curse Adam and Eve. And right there in that Garden of Eden, we have the what evangelists or theologians call the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would crush the head of the serpent. To God's covenant people, that promise would become a beacon of hope. To Eve, it was the assurance that she would be forgiven and God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world. To Satan, it was God's declaration of war, climaxing ultimately we see at the end of Revelation in Satan's destruction. But after giving this one incredible promise, God didn't stop there. God didn't stop. From then on, all through Old Testament scripture, God seems to be saying, look for him, he's coming. Look for him, he's coming. He's coming. And God provides gradual, progressive revelation in pictures and types and shadows and direct prophecy in promises of the one who's coming and of what he would do. There are over 300 promises, uh, uh, prophecies of his coming. We see it in right in the Garden of Eden. God immediately, not after a trial period, God didn't make Adam and Eve make their own coats of skins. He provided it. He killed that animal. He made the coats of skins. Blood was shed so that they could be covered from the sin. We see a picture of it in the ark that protected Noah and his family from destruction, from the flood of God's judgment. We see it in the substitute of a ram that was caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22, where God had asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and he was getting ready to do that, and the ram was in the thicket. Remember Isaac, who doesn't seem to talk very much in Scripture, Isaac asks the question, Father, the wood and the fire are here, but where is the lamb? And Abraham, in that prophetic response, says, God himself, God himself will provide the lamb. And he did. The Apostle John uh, John the Baptizer in, in John's Gospel, 129, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see it in the person of Joseph, one who was rejected by his brethren, sold into slavery, whom God used to save his people. We see it in the blood of the Passover lamb, the lamb being slain, the blood applied to the doorpost and lintel that protected the Jewish households where the firstborn was not killed when the angel of death passed over. We see it in the life-giving water that was came out of the rock when Moses struck the rock in Exodus chapter 17. We see it in many all of the sacrifices that are described for us in the book of Leviticus. We see it in the bronze serpent that God had Moses raise up, and all those who were bitten by the poisonous snake looked to that snake in faith, in the bronze snake in faith, trusting God's word, and they were saved. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself uses that as and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. We see prophecies of it in Genesis 49. We see where which tribe he would come from. Genesis 49, in the blessing that Jacob was giving to his sons, would be from the tribe of Judah that the ruler would come. We see it in uh, Balaam's prophecy, fourth prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, of the ruler who would come out of Israel. We see it in the book of Ruth, in the person of Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer, who was willing to redeem, who was able to redeem, and did redeem. The picture of the one who was coming. And we have so many prophecies of the Messiah and of what he would do in, Je- in the Psalms, in Genesis, in Psalm 22. The first verse, the Lord quotes from the 
cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In, in Psalm 22, verse 18, that they uh, divide my garments for clothing and uh, cast lots. Psalm 69, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. In Isaiah 53, we have a picture of the suffering servant who opened not his mouth, who was went to the cross. It was God's will to, for him to suffer. We see the place of his birth foretold in the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem. Something that was well known to the Jewish people, because when the Magi came and asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They had the answer right away, in Bethlehem, that's where he is to be born. And we see it in the last prophetic book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, the son of righteousness will lie, rise with healing in his wings. And that's just a small survey of all through Old Testament scripture. Of God saying, He's coming, He's coming, I promise He's coming, He's coming, this is where He's going to be coming, this is who, which tribe He's going to come out, this is when He's coming, this is what He's going to do, this is where He's going to be born. All of that given for us. God promised it. Do you know what the odds or probabilities of, of over 300 prophecies given over centuries from different people coming true? It's a mathematical impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. What about the application? God keeps His promises, and His promises are true. God keeps His promises. At the Good News Children's uh, Child Evangelist Fellowship, the Christmas Club, the, the theme of it is God keeps His promises. And they have the kids do an action and like us to do it this morning. It's God keeps his promises. Let's do that. God keeps his promises. Amen. He does. God keeps his promises. We have so many wonderful promises given to us in Scripture. And unlike our human promises, which we may or may not keep, and no matter how good our intentions, sometimes we can't keep our promises. But God's promises never fail. Psalm 145 verse 3 says this, The Lord is faithful to all His promises and loving toward all He has made. Second Corinthians 1 verse 20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him the Amen is spoken by us. Hebrews 13, just to name a few. You probably have your, some of your favorite promises. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 26, verse 3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 8, 28, All things work together for good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. 1 John 1, 9, If he confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Deuteronomy 33, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our life. God keeps 
His promises. God planned it, God promised it, and He did it. But that was in His own time. You see, after that last prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, there was a 400 year period of prophetic silence. But God was still working as He always is. God is always working. Psalm 121 says, The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is always working, even when it seems like to us that He may not be. And He was working and preparing things so that when the the Son of Man came, that the Gospel would be able to uh, spread quickly. And that's something you can look it up. There's so many things that were right for the Gospel to spread when Jesus came. So thirdly, God did it. God did it. In Luke chapter 1, we see a very busy angel, Gabriel. He comes first to the Zacharias and with the promise of the forerunner to the Messiah, of John the Baptizer. And that was a miraculous birth to a couple in their senior years. Then the angelic message to a teenage Mary, announcing what was going to happen. And let me just read that. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, I think it's starting at Luke chapter 1. Now, uh, let's start at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. And that response from Mary set in motion what was planned in eternity past to come about. I still remember, many of you probably do the classic scene in a Charlie Brown Christmas Charlie Brown is so frustrated and he yells out, Can someone tell me what Christmas is all about? And then Linus says, Yes, Charlie, I can. And Linus goes with his blanket to the middle of the screen. And then he says, Lights, please. And drops his blanket. And then he begins to read. And he reads from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Let's read a few. He reads more, but let me read from verse 8 through verse Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we'll stop there. I think... uh, In the original, he reads all the way to verse 20. Uh, Picks up his blanket, walks over to Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. A few decades later, the Apostle Paul would write in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time. That was at exactly the right time. Some translations read at the right time. God sent forth His Son, Born of a woman. Remember that promise in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Born of, the, born of a woman, born under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption of sons. And that is what we are. John 1, verse 11 and 12 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him to them that believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children or sons of God. And again, the Apostle John in First John 3 says, and that is what we are. That is what we are, children of God. God had planned it in eternity past. For millennia, God had promised it. But now, God did it. He caused Caesar Augustus to declare a decree a census, and that caused Mary and Joseph to go to their ancestral hometown of David, Bethlehem. And there, there, because even the Holiday Inn Express was not available, he was born in a manger. He was born in a manger. I like God, Max Lucado's description of uh, that in his book called God Came Near. It says, It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, this one appeared no different from any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that have passed while you read these words. It came and went. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He he who was larger than the universe became an embryo, and he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. God had come near. God had come near. The Gospels give us only one glimpse into the childhood of the Lord, isn't it? It doesn't go much into detail. When he was 12 years old, he went with his parents to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then uh, he's with a large group of people going. And then when they return, the parent, Joseph and Mary, assume he's with the crowd and find out he's not. And three days later, they find him in the temple asking questions and amazing the teachers of the law with his insight and and his uh, understanding. In that same book, God Came Near, I'll just read a few. Uh, Max Lucado has a chapter called 25 Questions for Mary. What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service at the synagogue? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone you couldn't hear? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God in whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did he do well in school? Did you ever scold him? Did he ever ask a question about scripture? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest with him? Did he ever wake up afraid? He was a human child. He was obedient to his parents, it says in that chapter in Luke. And he grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But then it fast forwards to his ministry, doesn't it? He's baptized by John the Baptizer. 
And you see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the God the Father speaking, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That same message is repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Peter, James, and John are there to hear it. For three years, he chose his disciples. For three years, he taught them patiently, demonstrating his divine power and authority over all kinds of sickness, healing either in person or by a word at a distance. Over the blind, he healed the blind, he healed the deaf and the mute, he healed the paralytic, he healed the man with the withered hand. He had authority over demons, whether they were single or legion. He had authority over the wind and the waves. The disciples were astonished, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He had authority over fish. He told Peter, go and catch the first fish and there will be a coin in that and you can pay the temple tax with that. He had authority over birds. He commanded the rooster to crow at exactly the right time. He had authority over death. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and then Lazarus. All he had to do was call Lazarus comfort. But he was steadily moving towards his purpose for which he had come. What was that purpose? Some of the Gospels summarize it very well. Mark, Mark 10 and verse 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19 verse 10 He came to seek and save those who were lost. John 20 verse 31 says, Many things could have been written, but these are written that you may know that He is the Son of God, and by believing you have eternal life in His name. And we see God's plan moving forward. After Lazarus' raising is when all of that, the news spread and the rulers begin to plot, plot His death. Caiaphas prophetically says it's better that one man die than all of us perish. We see the sham trials that he had to endure in the interchange with Pontius Pilate in John chapter 19 when Jesus didn't respond to his questions. Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? You ought to release you. And In 19.11 Jesus replies, you could have no power against me unless it was given to you from above. As Peter said in Acts 2.23, He, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Mark in Mark's Gospel 15.25 simply states this, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. All four Gospels describe the crucifixion in varying aspects. And it was there on the cross that he suffered and died and bore the full penalty of your sin and mine. The holiness of God that couldn't tolerate sin, the wrath of God that demanded a punishment for sin, the justice of God that required a price for sin, was paid in full by the Lord hanging on that cross. That was why he came. That was why he came. And there on that cross, the love of God Demonstrated Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The mercy of God, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. The grace of God, by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Let everyone should boast. Ephesians 2 verse 8. His compassion, his loving kindness, would demonstrate that he could cry from the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished it is finished 
Perhaps a somewhat better translation, it stands finished, it stands finished. The writer in Hebrews 10 says, once for all, once for all, once for all. An action which took place once for all, continuing to effects for all time. It stands finished. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Peter continues on in that sermon after Pentecost, Acts 20. 2 verse 23 was determined, taken by lawless hands, have crucified him and put to death. But he goes on, verse 24 of Acts 2, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible, it was not possible that he should be held by it. Robert Lowry in his song, Low in the Grave He Lay, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose ar- victorious over the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, Christ arose, hallelujah. Christ arose. The Apostle Paul sums up the gospel very well in First Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures. And he was seen by, he describes all those people he was seen by. God planned it, God promised it, God did it. It is finished. The price of our sin has been fully paid. Application. God has a right time for all his plans even today. God has a right time for all his plans even today for each one of us. Time and time again we've experienced that. For 12 years, my mom lived alone in India after my dad went home to glory. And I would go twice a year. And she had a lot of cardiac issues, but at her age, she did not want to do anything about it. And so she had anginal pains, and I always thought that each time I would come back, I wouldn't see her again. And uh, she had to take those uh, nitro pills every time that she had the pain, and sometimes the pills would be in the other room. Well, that's another story, because it's so many times God brought somebody in at the at the right time to get those pills for her. But her one prayer was that she knew all, all the children were away, uh, that family would be with her when she was called home. But God had a plan for that too. She fell and broke her hip. And because of that, we were able to spend the last week with her. And myself and my two sisters were able to travel and go and be with her. And her prayer was answered. God has a right time for all his plans, even today. Do you trust that? Do you trust that? Lastly and quickly, God will complete it. God will complete it. You know, in the upper room before his death, as he was with his disciples, they had heart trouble. Not the kind you go to see a cardiologist for, but the Lord says to them in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. First Thessalonians chapter 4. But I do not want you to be ignorant, verse 13. Brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet in the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned being there when my mom died. The last week we would take turns, my sisters would, I would be there during part of the day and then I'd go home to the, her apartment and sleep and come back in the morning and my sisters would stay the night. It was June 30th, Sunday morning. They had gone back to the apartment to freshen up and come back and I was sitting in my bedside holding her hand and she had difficulty breathing so actually they had an oxygen mask on her and, uh, and she was a little bit of labored breathing even with that and, she seemed to be saying something, and I leaned over to hear what she was. I was holding her hand and leaned over to hear what she was saying. And three times she said the same word in Malayalam, which is the word jayam. Jayam is victory. Three times she said jayam and slipped into the presence of the Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation 21 gives us a glimpse of what that might be like. God planned it. God promised it. God did it. And God will complete it. God will complete it. Application. With all that's going on in the world around us, it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? But God has a plan. Our future is in His hands. And it's completely secure. It is secure. Not because of anything we do. Because He has secured it. And that He is coming to receive us to Himself. If you are a child of God. How do you become a child of God? The Philippian jailer asked Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved Romans 10 verse 9 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved it's as simple as that it's a simple message that even a child can understand but it's so profound that we cannot fully explain it that's all you need to do and then you can be guaranteed that you will be with Him for all eternity. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted the Lord, I trust even now as you're sitting here. The Gospel says today is the day of salvation. I pray that you would do that today. If you've trusted Him, are you willing to trust His promises? Are you willing to trust that He has a plan for your life? Are you willing to trust God for the future?
he has secured it. And he is coming again. Maranatha. May his name be glorified. May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the wonder of the incarnation of who Jesus is. Today there is a glorified human body, glorified body in heaven. The first fruits of what we are to experience if we are your children. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. Thank you for the joy of knowing our sins are forgiven. We are free from the penalty of sin through the price Jesus paid. We can be free from the power of sin through the Holy Spirit. And one day, Lord, we, oh, what a day that we will be free from the very presence of sin. So we long for that day. Thank you as we approach this Advent season and we remember and consider the wonder of God coming to earth, becoming flesh, becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Thank you that he rose again the third day, victorious over sin and hell and death. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So pray we would live in the reality of that, and that you would go with us, helping us to trust you, and to know that we are in our hands and no one can pluck us out. Thank you for every blessing we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. <laughs>